0: This podcast is part of the BombPod Media Network. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you for joining me today. From wherever you are, whenever you're listening... For today's episode 10, part three of the Howard Dully story. Now, this is the time on a lot of shows where people say, sit back, open a bottle of wine, crack open a beer involving deck chairs or microbreweries, whatever you wish. But for me, it is. That was a disappointing. Crack open a Diet Pepsi and take a bite of my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's how I create. Now that I'm well hydrated and sufficiently fed, it's time for me to say thank you to everybody out there who listens to the show. You guys are amazing. Every day I wake up, I can't believe that I'm able to live the dream. Thank you all so much. I also want to say thank you to all the new iTunes reviews this week. I want to thank Beck from The Minds of Madness. This is one of the best true crime podcasts out there. The Minds of Madness. Please go check it out. Also to Podcast Lover 121. Thank you. Joel H. Another podcaster. His podcast is called This Week in True Crime. And gotta go check this one out too the next is from Mildly Enraged Urgh. Mama Crafter and Mama D9 I usually don't read my reviews because I love them all equally but this one made me laugh so hard I've gotta read it just part of it it says quote she's Karen Wickham, the brilliant If endearingly deranged host of STAT. (laughs) Did you go to high school with me or something? I don't know. Thank you, Mama D. Thank you, everybody. Oh, sorry. I forgot. Todd Hedges, too. I'm sorry, Todd. Thank you, Todd, as well. And next, I want to say thank you to my two new Patreon subscribers this week. Thank you to Navajo Birdsong. I really appreciate it. And to Mary Calder, who is a dear friend of mine, someone who I worked with and I miss dearly. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. So here we go, everybody. It's time to start part three of Howard Dully's life story, his bio. So as we recall, Howard Dully is abused, lobotomized, and not allowed to live at home. Lou Dolly was determined to get her way by not having Howard in her home and she would do anything it took to erase him from the family picture. Walter Freeman had lobotomized Howard and was now trying to do some damage control. He had the ire of his colleagues and an investigation into his practice and credentials. Rodney Dolly remains indifferent and unwilling to rock Lou's boat. Did Howard stand a chance at a normal life? Was there not anyone willing to help him? Yes, his grandmother and his uncle, who were bullied out of Howard's life. Running ideas of what to do with Howard, Dr. Freeman sought to have him institutionalized. The place? Agnews State Hospital, also known as the Great Hospital for the Insane. It had a history of death and despair. It was built in the 1880s. It's the big old building. In 1906, there was a great earthquake and the building collapsed, and over a hundred patients died. So this would be Howard's newest home. He arrived on a cold winter day in handcuffs. You see, he had been transferred from a juvenile hall. Lou and Rodney, under Walter's advice, made Howard a ward of the court in the County of Santa Clara. They were told to get him classified as a 601 for children that were beyond control. For kids who were causing too much trouble and were at risk of becoming seriously delinquent of course this was all a bunch of crap and unfortunately there weren't too many children's advocates then and the 601 was granted and howard was to be housed at the santa clara county juvenile hall Juve. now juvie was clearly not a place for howard to be He hadn't been charged with a crime. He didn't deserve to be locked up in jail. The only crimes committed were that of Lou and Walter against Howard. Howard was justifiably scared. He was put in a cell for three days by himself and observed. After that, he was moved to the general population with about 30 other boys. It was what he expected, loud and aggressive. And there was bullying and fighting. Howard was sad, lonely and scared. He even tried writing a letter to Lou to reach out and try to get her to love him. His time consisted of studying and some exercise. He also spent a lot of time talking to psychiatrists, doctors, and psychologists. The doctor he spent most time with was named Dr. Shore. Here are a series of notes written by the psychiatrist that I think best describe his evaluation and recommendations. Quote, The minor was brought into the department by his father after making an unsuccessful attempt to get him into Napa State Hospital. The father declared Howard as beyond control and that he is failing in school, constantly harasses his stepmother, terrifies his younger brother, suspects him of stealing and stated that he would no longer keep him in the house. This move triggered off when Dr. Freeman recommended to the father that Howard should have a room outside the home or he would destroy the family. The report further went on to discuss Howard's childhood, the close relationship with his mother, and her tragic death, and his lobotomy. Quote, the parents, especially the stepmother, considered him intolerable to live with. It was the stepmother who initially took him to Freeman. Hmm. The report continued that Howard had become a disturbed boy because, quote, the stepmother has always seen him as a problem and not nearly as good as her own sons. In the home at this time, he is always looked on with skepticism and is never allowed to be alone with his younger brother. Neither parent feels that they can trust him. So Dr. Shore concluded this. This is really important. Quote, In the best interest of Howard, he should be removed from his home in that his stepmother seems determined to destroy him. He saw what was going on. His earlier quotes alluded to that, and then he says it, his stepmother seems determined to destroy him. How about removing her? Throughout my studying of Dr. Freeman and Howard Dully, there has been a theme that has screamed at me. Freeman seemed to always escape the destruction he created, and Howard throughout his life couldn't get away from the path of destruction that he did not create. Fate, or whatever you want to call it, had Freeman and Howard converging on each other. And when the inevitable collision occurred, Howard was left horribly injured and Freeman walked away with only a few scratches. The fallout, Howard fighting to survive, and Freeman's final judgment only came with his death. If you believe in any of that, but that is dead. Back to the story. There was a meeting with Freeman, Dr. Shore, Howard, Lewin, Rodney, and the probation officer. The decision for where Howard would live was not the juvenile home. Obviously, he hadn't committed a crime. Not Napa Valley Psychiatric Hospital. The doctors wouldn't admit him because he wasn't psychotic. Not the McGraws who had shown him and his father so much kindness over the years because Rodney wouldn't allow them to adopt him because they were religious. That's a great reason. His new home would be Agnew State Hospital, Asylum for the Insane. And why? Because they would take him. Good enough reason, right? Problem solved for everybody. Something to note here. Howard learned later that Dr. Shore hated Freeman and hated the fact that he performed lobotomies on children and had wished it was in his power to stop him. Shore wrote in his notes that very day, I agreed with Mrs. Dolly that Howard was in danger in the home, but made no recommendation as regards the solution of the problem. Another spineless jellyfish who knew what was going on in the home, who knew that Howard was a normal boy, that had been abused and lobotomized and that the problem was Lou, yet let's not rock the boat here. Let's just move forward with this ridiculously, insanely involved and complex situation. Let's do everything we can to get a healthy young boy out of his home, but overlook the obvious. The sick Bitch Lou, who was the criminal here, who should have been put away. Again, Howard was justifiably afraid. He was handcuffed, I don't know why, and being driven by a probation officer to the insane asylum. He was in isolation for three weeks to be observed. He had a brain scan, ink blot tests, and other psychological tests, and he was being studied by the doctors. They were looking for something other than the obvious. Howard's history should have explained it all, but they needed to justify locking up a 14-year-old in a men's ward of an insane asylum in which most of the patients were very ill, heavily medicated with different profound mental illnesses. The conditions were poor for a very sick man and even worse for a confused and abused boy. He was healthy and he wanted to be active. There was a huge park all around the grounds, but Howard couldn't go enjoy that because he didn't have privileges. His world consisted of this. Eating, sleeping, talking to doctors, wandering the halls of a ward that had three large areas, one at either end and one in the middle, and this is where the sickest patients would reside during the day. He should have been in school. He should have been socializing. He should have been playing being a kid and learning how to grow up and be an adult. Instead, he was locked up, learning nothing of any benefit except how to survive in this horrible condition. He was supposed to just naturally grow up and learn and mature to be a productive member of society, which everyone should have the right to, or the option, at some point in their lives. Some of the patients were allowed to enjoy the grounds, or have a job in the hospital, in the kitchen, laundry, doing manual labor and the like. The rest were significantly ill and stayed on the ward and that's who Howard spent his time with. They were psychotic and catatonic and heavily medicated. Other than patients, there were doctors and there were technicians who were pretty much students that were studying psychology and they were there 24 hours a day. Howard tried to be really inconspicuous and careful when assessed by the doctors and the technicians because he didn't want to be put on medication or get electric shock therapy. The few men he could talk to were there because of alcoholism and this is where he went before rehab existed. And this just totally blows my mind. He had not met anyone there who had a lobotomy. They're all sick and Walter managed to bypass them yet the young healthy boy was the only person in the building that had been lobotomized. His first and only friend there was a man named Frank who got Howard into rock and roll and music therapy and listening to records. Now, this is significant because music became a huge part of Howard's life and brought him happiness and helped him to cope with what was going on with him. So his days after meeting Frank were basically hanging out, smoking, drinking coffee and shooting the poop. Exactly what a 14-year-old should be doing, right? Once Howard's official observation was over, he was told by the doctors that there was nothing wrong with him, that he was okay, that he didn't have to be there, but we don't have any place to send you, they said. (sighs) He was deemed sane, but was locked up in a hospital because he had nowhere else to go? What's the discharge date for that sentence? When he turned 18, what then? Was he really going to be mentally disturbed and psychotic by then? I know most people would. (laughs) Anyway, so that's how he lived. What a crime. What a horrible series of crimes to be committed on a young man whose only crime was being healthy and rambunctious. Now, his father would come visit him every two weeks or so for an hour, and he would get to go outside and sit in the canteen, and it would always be awkward. There would be strained conversation. This is what... Howard wrote of his visits with his father. Quote, my father found these visits difficult. He found it difficult to talk to me. He thought I was acting unhappy because I wanted to hurt him. He thought my whole attitude was one of I'm going to make you feel bad because I feel bad. What a selfish, narcissistic bastard. He clearly felt guilty. I'm so sorry that he found the visits difficult. Wow, that's, that's a crappy life for you, that you get to go home and lie in a comfortable bed in a nice, warm, comfy home and eat meals and not get picked on bullied. <sighs> you know where I'm going with this. It just, it makes me crazy. Howard wrote a lot of letters at this time to his family and friends, but he never sent them and, well, he didn't get any sent to him. It was a boring, agonizing existence and he never thought it was going to end, but end it did. All of a sudden, one day, he was being transferred out of Agnew State Hospital to a group home called Rancho Linda School. It was a privately run institution located in the foothills of San Jose. Rancho Linda was self-described residential center for special education, designed to meet the needs of mentally and emotionally handicapped children and adolescents, to deal with educational, social, and emotional deficits as they affect the learning process offers a 24-hour controlled atmosphere designed to minimize anxieties. So this was another place that was very unsuited for Howard, but it was a wonderland compared to Agnews. It was basically a minimum security institution that housed approximately 110 kids. There were male and female dorms that were broken down by levels of care and trouble. For instance, the bad boys were in D unit and Howard spent a lot of time there and it was usually for minor offenses like not making your bed or not getting to class on time. It was generally a place for misfit kids like Howard who had no place to go. There are kids with many different ability challenges physical, mental, emotional and for some children it was for reasons such as Howard. Howard loved the change at first almost anything would be better than the horrors of a child being locked up in an adult asylum for the extremely ill, Howard had so much more freedom. The food was good and plentiful. He was around kids his own age, but the school classes were far below Howard's intelligence as they were designed for children with learning disabilities. So Howard's chance for education advancement was not available to him. Once again, the common consensus of the staff was that they didn't feel like Howard deserved to be there. He didn't fit the criteria. One of the staff named Napoleon Murphy Brock told Howard this years later. Just, I want to say before this, the wording and the terms used in this, you have to understand, came from the 1950s. So they may sound a bit offensive, but unfortunately that's how it was in those times. And here's the quote from Napoleon. We didn't think there was anything wrong with you. We thought the right diagnosis would have been, at most, emotionally disturbed because of something wrong with the home environment. This was a school for mentally retarded kids and kids with autism and with all kinds of physical impairments. You just didn't seem to be going through the same things that they were going through. You didn't require the medications they required. So there you go. Another professional staff who saw that Howard was an abused child forced out of his home and into a system that was poorly equipped to help him. Howard hadn't simply fallen between the cracks. He was intentionally placed in a snake pit. At Rancho Linda, Howard made friends and was one of the cool kids. A kind of acceptance that he hadn't really felt before. The school institution was supposed to offer many stimulating activities along with education and supervision. And this was not the case. The main activities that took place was smoking and sex. The very things the school was trying to steer these kids away from and protect them from. It was easy for them to get cigarettes and sneak out of their rooms to meet. Howard had a few girlfriends that he spent some time with, but there was one girl in particular that he had a real crush on. Her name was Annette. And they began to have an intimate relationship. From what I understand, this was Howard's first love. He had a girlfriend while he lived at home, but Annette was very special to him. And Howard craved attention. He was deprived of it. In fact, I would say most of the children there probably didn't get the love and affection they desperately needed. It was an act of defiance. Howard also became good friends with a guy named Ron. They were partners in crime, so to speak. They broke all the rules and covered each other's butts. As much as Howard felt a level of love and acceptance, he also, of course, missed his family terribly. He wanted to go home and be a part of the family. His father Rodney would visit every couple of weeks and the visits were always awkward and Rodney would never answer Howard's questions of when he could go home. Once, remarkably, Lou visited. I'm just going to quote what Howard said about the visit. I was actually happy to see her. I jumped up and tried to give her a hug and a kiss. She pushed me away. She didn't say anything, but nothing had changed. She didn't want anything to do with me. It hurt me. The funny thing is, even after everything that happened, I wanted to love her. I wanted her to love me. I wanted a mother even if it was Lou. I didn't want to be this angry rebel kid who was locked up because no one could handle him. I wanted to be a normal kid who lived at home with his mom and his dad and brothers who went to school and did all the normal kid stuff. Even after everything that happened, I still wished I had that kind of family. That just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for the boy and for the man who never got to experience that. Howard further described his life at Rancho Linda as this quote, It was like you were in a river caught in a current and you were going whatever way it took you. You knew you had no control over your own destiny. So you didn't dream and you didn't plan. There was no reason to plan. You knew you had to survive what you were going through and the way to make it survivable was to have fun. Howard's time at Rancho Linda was about to end. It ended abruptly. One morning when Howard was getting ready for breakfast, a counselor entered his room and said, pack your stuff, you're leaving. One of the patient's family had found out what was going on at the school, the lack of supervision and the sexual activity. Some students were caught in the act of having sex it became a big story. There was a headline from a San Jose newspaper that read, Sex party at school, four held. And another one read, Eight held following Rancho Linda orgy. Article read, Quote, Four teenage couples were booked at Juvenile Hall yesterday in the wake of what sheriff's investigators called a sex party in the girls' dormitory at Rancho Linda School for the Disturbed Children. The four boys and four girls were ranged in age from 13 to 17. This all came to a head on March 10, 1966. And on March 22nd, 1966, the school was closed. Another headline said juvenile school gives up license after sex party. So all but seven of the 150 kids were placed in other institutions. And it turned out that 30 Of the 32 girls had gotten pregnant think on that for a second how tragic is that how equipped were any of these kids to become mothers and fathers they would likely never see these kids grow up and so it continues so back to juvie for howard but only for a short stay because he hadn't committed a crime and lou would still not let him back in the house. From juvie, he went to a halfway house. And there weren't many rules to follow. And he was given a job with very little pay, sorting clothes for 10 cents an hour. And I think the minimum wage was, I don't know, over 60 cents anyway, It was just ridiculous. Howard looked much older than 17 years old. He was six foot four and 180 pounds. And when not working, he would hang out at a restaurant or drink beer at a bar with some members of a biker gang. He also made friends with a guy named Ed Woodson, and they got into a lot of trouble together. Ed was a bad influence. I want to take a second here. Howard was 17 years old and out on his own with no direction. He didn't know how to take care of himself. How could he? His growth and development socially, emotionally, psychologically, and intellectually had stopped around 9 or 10 years old. Then he had a lobotomy. Howard was an intelligent guy, but his education stopped at around grade seven, and even then he had trouble in school before that. He didn't get love from his family. He was moved from home to home and institution to institution. He knew the basics of self-care, but not much else. He lived his life to survive, not to thrive. I didn't understand what was serious and what wasn't. I knew the difference between wrong and right, but I really didn't understand the significance of doing right and wrong. Furthermore, he wrote, quote, I was nearly 18. I was old enough to be doing all kinds of things, but I really didn't know how to do anything. I didn't have a high school diploma. I had never applied for a job. I didn't have a checking account or a savings account. I had no idea how to handle money. I had never washed my own clothes. I didn't know how to cook for myself, even though I helped out in the kitchen at Rancho Linda sometimes, I had never bought food for myself in a grocery store. I had never bought myself a pair of shoes, a pair of pants, or a shirt. I had never gotten myself a haircut. I had no idea how to do anything. The fact is is that Howard was living on his own, and trouble would find him. And he wouldn't know how to avoid it, or deal with it. The following are the crimes he committed, or the situations he found himself in. Now, I'm not dismissing his crimes. A crime is a crime. He committed them and there were consequences. There should be. But I think that you can agree here that there are some extenuating circumstances. Howard always lived just to survive, to get from one day to the next. And when he lived on his own, he learned new ways to get by and they had become criminal. He didn't have any great role models or his role models were petty criminals or people just trying to survive like himself. So what got him in trouble was check fraud and he was throwing a lot of money around. He got arrested eventually and was now locked up with a criminal record for a felony. And this may lead him not to just jail time, but prison. So his father went to jail and worked out some kind of deal with the police there and was presented to Howard that if he went back to Agnew's psychiatric hospital he could get out of going to prison all he had to do was act crazy they would admit him and there you go free as a bird right so he did his best to act crazy because he wasn't and it worked The fact is, it was pretty easy then to get yourself admitted to a psychiatric hospital, especially if you'd already had a lobotomy, but much more difficult to convince them that you weren't, or that you were cured. He spent the next two years as a patient of Agnews. What did he learn during this stay? He learned how to run money scams with a friend named Steve. He'd buy cigarettes from the canteen, replace them with hand-rolled cigarettes and then take them back to the canteen and get another pack or he would sell them to patients who were too sick to notice the difference. He sold alcohol to alcoholics on the ward and real grass from the lawn as marijuana. He also found a way to see female patients who were segregated from each other. Most of the time was filled with boredom. He was a lot less scared The very sick patients didn't upset him near as much, and he learned his way around the system from his stay at Rancho Linda. He learned to work the system by forging paperwork for money and trips outside the hospital. He even visited his grandma Daisy once, and she was really happy to see him. Remember, she had fought long and hard to have him in her life. She fought for vindication for his abuse and lobotomy, and she never stopped. But by now he was a man and there wasn't much more that she could do. He was able to get leave whenever he wanted and he felt that he could have even had himself discharged, but he didn't because he knew nothing else. He had a friend, he had money, a roof over his head, you know, his basic needs were met and that's all he knew. His friend Steve got into enough trouble though that he was treated with shock therapy and he was never the same. And this scared Howard because he didn't want it to happen to him. He had some visits occasionally from his dad and his grandma Boo. His primary doctor was a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Shaw. He would visit him once a month and there would be hours of questions and tests. And Howard was told again that he didn't need to be at Agnews Hospital. Here's a quote from Howard. After a while, he told me he knew I didn't belong in Agnews. But he also told me that I couldn't leave. I would say, how can you say that? How can you tell me I don't belong here, but I have to stay here anyway? He'd smile and say, that's just the way it is. Eventually, he was released in the spring of 1969. He moved from Agnews to a halfway house at 884 Jackson Street in Santa Clara. This time, he was deemed disabled and was getting $120 a month from the government. It paid his rent and gave him some pocket money. He didn't like to follow rules, even simple rules, like abiding to curfew and alcohol abstinence. He met a guy named David Sawyer, and they became friends, and they would party together, and this got him kicked out of the halfway house. He moved in with David and his girlfriend, Lynn. He lived a life of partying and hanging out, and he felt no need to work because he had money and a place to live. He started up with a check fraud again. He got arrested many times after that, but kept getting let off. He was learning nothing from these arrests. Commit a crime, spend a couple of days in jail, get out. And he was committing felonies. So where maybe society could have led him in the right direction, his lobotomy and his life was still standing in his way of that because no judge was going to put a guy away who had a lobotomy. He, they weren't going to take responsibility for that. So his disability kept him out of jail, and his past life of abuse and alienation and institutionalizations left him ill-equipped to live a normal and productive life. Eventually, he met his future first wife, Martha. She had been a patient at Agnews as well. She'd come from a wealthy family, and they disapproved of the relationship. Their life together consisted of partying, and after a year and a half, they got married, and neither families were happy about this. Howard said this of this time, quote, We had such big dreams and ambitions. We were married. We were going to make it together. We were going to live the good life, but we didn't have the first idea how. Martha came into an inheritance and her parents helped her use the money to buy a condo. So now they had a home and no idea how to be a married couple, how to be adults. They were together from 1970 to 1975. And during this time, they got heavily into drugs and alcohol. They had terrible fights and some turned violent even physical. Howard had never been a violent man. He rarely did anything more than protect himself, but drugs and booze and the inability to be responsible and think as an adult brought out the worst in him. And Martha the same. He continued to have run-ins with the law, but always seemed to escape incarceration. Without real consequences for his behavior, there was no reason to stop. His expectations of life were low. It was all he knew. And things would continue to get worse. In 1972, Howard was homeless. He was living with a bunch of other homeless men by some railroad under a tree, and he was stealing for food and booze. He eventually settled down with a lady named Christine Harriman for a while. They met while drinking at a bar. He spent the night with her and didn't leave. He moved in. Christine had a toddler named Justin from a previous relationship. They were bad from the very start. Christine reminded him of Lou. They used each other, they were on again, off again. It was completely unstable. Christine would move in and out, different friends would move in and out, and Howard would stay. It was a very transient, erratic, destructive life. In 1979, Christine became pregnant, and Howard was the father, and they had a son. Howard named him Rodney after his father. However, Rodney really didn't have anything to do with this child, he wasn't there when he was born. Howard hadn't seen his family in a long time. But he did get a visit from his brother, George. George admitted that he was afraid to see Howard because Lou had told everyone that Howard was dangerous. This is what Lou had told the family. Quote, Lou had convinced him, George, that I was dangerous, that he and his family wouldn't be safe having me around. Lou said I was predatory and scary. He said, A paranoid schizophrenic and unpredictable. George told me Lou started using those exact words right after I had my operation and had continue using them years afterwards. What a sick monster. Just, nope, can't let it go. Got to keep going and going and going and going. It wasn't bad enough that this boy was out of your life for good. we got to do everything we can to make sure he will not come back in and let's scare the entire family. This shows that Lou was getting even more wacko. The marriage with his father had fallen apart and there was a lot of arguing. Here's a quote from Howard that he learned about the situation. One day Lou took Brian aside, his real brother. She was worried about Rod, she said. She was afraid he was becoming violent. She was afraid he would try and hurt her or hurt Brian. So she gave him some advice. Get ready for this. If your father gets violent with you, she said, you should get a hammer. And sneak up behind him and hit him hard at the back of the head. That will kill him. <laughs> she was teaching a boy how to kill his father. Same old, same old shit. Turn on someone, lie or stretch the truth to complete obscurity. Turn everyone against each other and gaslight them into thinking that she was the victim and they were the problem. So George and Howard had coffee and chatted. George wanted to express that he felt responsible for Howard's abuse and lobotomy because he didn't stand up for him. Howard tried to assure him that it was not his fault but George was unconvinced. Now that Howard was a father he knew that he had to become responsible and be a good dad. He got a job managing a mobile home park. Howard however started having an affair on Christine and Christine tried to run him over with her car. She was a jealous woman, and she even went after him with a steak knife one time. He continued to lose jobs and opportunities and cheat on Christine. They had lost their home and had to move in with Christine's sister, Nancy. He was now a homeless alcoholic, drug addict, in a completely destructive relationship. It was bad for the whole family. Howard met a woman named Barbara. Through his current girlfriend, Christine, they had worked together, Barbara said that when she saw Howard for the first time, it was love at first sight. Howard thought that she was cute and smart and funny, and he was definitely interested, but he was still a bit of a ladies' man. Barbara was a very compassionate woman. Her mother had passed away from a brain tumor when she was 15, and she nursed her mother, providing the kind of comfort that she felt she was not getting from the nurses that were visiting her. And this is what led Barbara into working in health care. Now that Christine and Howard's relationship was bad, they broke up, but it was hard for them all to survive individually. So Howard, Christine, Barbara, and the sons all moved in together. And this just led to years of moving in and out, lots of erratic, nomadic, and abusive behavior. Their lifestyles were very problematic. Howard was now an alcoholic with anger issues and he couldn't keep a job. Christine's presence in the house was very disruptive. She was always bringing home strays. And Christine was told to leave. And Howard got custody of their son, Rodney. He then got a DUI. Barbara laid down the law. She said, no more drinking or drugs. And he became sober. Howard now could see his life with clear eyes, and he didn't like what he saw. This is a quote from Howard. My life looked different to me when I wasn't drinking all the time and it didn't look good. It looked like it was going nowhere. I was an adult. I was a father, but I was sort of nothing after that. I had never had a real job. I had never had anything like a career. It's like I'd been living in a kind of fog and the fog started to lift. One day I woke up and realized I wasn't going any place and I was almost 40 years old. So Howard had gotten sober, but things with Christine had gotten worse. She was struggling, and the boys, Justin and Rodney, missed each other, so they moved back together again with Barbara and Howard. They moved into a four-bedroom house, and they lived hand-to-mouth. And Howard realized that he needed to go back to school, and he did. At 43, in 1991, he studied computer science, and he graduated in 1993. He was unable to find steady work, though. In 1994, his grandma Boo died at the age of 96. And things got very serious on July 7th, 1994. Howard had almost died from a massive heart attack. He was lucky to survive. He quit smoking cold turkey and started taking better care of himself. And after all this, he realized that he wanted to marry the love of his life. And he did. They got married on September 30th, 1995. They had a lovely wedding. Unfortunately, Christine was back to her old tricks, living her destructive life and letting people move in and out like a revolving door. So Barbara and Howard moved out again, but soon after Christine became gravely ill with a serious heart condition and died shortly after. So now they were a family of four, Howard, Barbara, Justin, and Rodney, and things started to settle down and fall into place. Howard, for the first time in his life, got a job he loved as a truck driver. And things were really looking up. I think this is a natural place to stop because things really started looking up for Howard and his family. The next part and last part of the series is going to talk about what happened in his life from 2003 up until present time. So I look forward to finishing up this series on a high note. So please join me next episode. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So this is usually the time of the show where I do the suture room. But first of all, I want to introduce you to two of my favorite true crime podcasts. I love true crime. And I love these four ladies. So here we go. Let's start off by listening to corpus delicti hey y'all jen and Lindsay here from the corpus delicti podcast here to tell you to check out our show if true crime's your thing it's ours too just a little dash of lightheartedness and a hint of southern charm serial killers controversial cases historical hallmarks we've got it all so just join us every tuesday on itunes podbeam or many other podcast apps as we dive into compelling cases and crack them open for you you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday. Thanks, ladies. I have listened to every episode. And they're great. Lots of fun. Great research. Very good storytellers. Please go check them out. Check them out, y'all. That is my amazing southern accent as you can hear i they are good at it i hope i didn't offend anybody next i want to introduce you to some murderous moms oh wait a minute moms that talk about murder here we go hey guys this is mandy and melissa from moms and murder a true crime podcast featuring two moms who think they're funny trust us guys we are Join us each week as we discuss both the infamous and unfamiliar stories in the world of true crime. You can check us out on our website at momsandmurder.com and also connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We release new episodes on Tuesdays, so we hope you'll check us out. Definitely go check out these ladies as well. I've listened to all of their episodes too, and they are fabulous. Definitely worth a subscription to everybody. Thanks, ladies. So hot diggity dog, it is now time for the, can I hear you? Suture room, 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 room. Come on in, you know what to do. Lie down on the stretcher with the comfy pillow and the comfy blankets and all the delicious treats. This time, I have three packs of arrowroot cookies that you can dip into some orange juice yeah the milk was a little curdly, so sorry about that so settle in and enjoy this wild wacky and interesting story that i experienced while working in the er here we go as you all know the emergency room and be and usually is a very busy, crazy place of organized chaos, even though it doesn't seem that way. And because of that, there's a lot of running around, and we don't always have the time that we want to spend with individual patients. We have to see the sickest first and go from there. Now, that doesn't mean that we're mean or we don't care, not in the least. And a lot of people. Or there is a consensus that we can be the meanest, nastiest nurses around. And most of us are lovely. Yes, there are a few. I'm not going to deny that. But anyway, if you wonder where I'm going with this, I'm going to tell you right now. So I'm going to tell you about a situation where I know people thought I was the meanest nurse ever. Here we go. There is a lady that came to the eMERGE often. Let's call her June. And she had what we call pseudo-seizures, which means that they're not real seizures. And they're usually caused by some kind of somosomatic, somatic some kind of mental health origin where for attention-seeking behavior or maybe because she really feels that she is sick. Um, And has uh, seizures. Sometimes people come in for attention or drug seeking, different things like that. So I'm not going to speak as to why this lady did this, but she did. So it was a crazy busy day and I was working in an area where they weren't the sickest patients in the hospital, but it was very busy. So we're talking people with appendicitis and bad flu, things like that where we were constantly having to give medications, check on them, get them ready to go up for surgery if need be, that type of thing. This lady came in and with a history of seizure that day. She was in the room, did all her vitals, things like that, made sure she was settled in and safe. She kept ringing the bell and kept asking me to come in over and over and over and over and over and over again. And i don't mind going in and doing the best that i can for people but it was can i have a glass of water sure get it ring can i have this sure get it and i guess after a while i wasn't getting in there fast enough and i just couldn't go for every little thing so she came out of her room and carefully threw herself on the floor carefully meaning that she sort of very artistically laid herself down and started having a fake seizure. We had stretchers coming up and down the hallways, all this going on and I knew that she really I knew that she really wasn't having one. One way to tell if someone is really having a seizure is that you lift up their arm over their face, over their head. And if you let go and the arm falls onto their head, they're likely having a seizure because most of us will protect ourselves, meaning that you'll direct your arm away from your head. I always feel bad when their hand falls on their head, but it gives a pretty good indication. Another thing is the person may become incontinent or meaning that they lose control of their bowel or their bladder. Another way is that generally most seizures take a certain pattern on how the body moves. In this case, this lady wasn't presenting in any of those ways and I've seen her present this way before. So I stood there and I looked down at her and I said, June, please go back to your room. People were appalled at me. How dare I look down at this poor lady having a seizure and tell her to go back to her room. She continued to do her acting routine and I said, come on June. We're really busy here. I need you to go back to your room. She turned her head, opened up one of her eyes and said, I can't. I'm having a seizure. (laughs) And she proceeded to start seizing again. Oh, man. So eventually she got off the floor, went into her room, lied down, and had a nap doctor saw her, made sure she was okay after a while, and sent her home. Sometimes we just have to give them the attention that they need and let them stay for a little while and send them home. But yeah, that was the day where people thought I was one of the world's worst and meanest nurses ever. I hope you enjoyed today's suture room. Thank you for joining me. Before I end today's show, I'm going to ask you if you can do something for me. If you could take the time and go to iTunes and leave me a review. It really helps to get the show out there. The more reviews I get, the more it moves the podcast up the ranks and is more visible. So if you could take the time, and leave me a review, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's it for today. Thank you for joining me on STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And don't forget that sometimes it's the cure that kills you.